afternoon, brethren. And thank you, ladies, for that song. That was a sermon in itself. It's amazing the wonderful talent that we have here at headquarters of people that can sing and play instruments and all of that. We're very blessed to have all of that here, and that was a wonderful, beautiful song. Well, brethren, thinking about what to speak about today in the sermon, and I thought, well, what do people like to talk about? What do people like to discuss? What's, what's big? What's in the news these days? I thought, well, let's talk about politics. How about politics? You guys, you like politics, right? Politics are interesting. All kinds of stuff going on in politics these days. Obamacare is the big, you know, the big thing that's going on in the news and all the politics behind that, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I don't think Mr. Ruddleston would approve of talking about politics on the feast, on this feast day, as he called it in the sermonette. But we can be thankful that in God's church, we understand that we are called out of this world. We're called to be different. We're not called to be a part of voting and man's government, but we are looking forward to the coming government of God, to Jesus Christ, to his kingdom. We're called out of this world to be different, to be a peculiar people. We're called ambassadors for Christ. And as such, we are strangers and pilgrims on this earth. But we are representing Christ's coming kingdom. And that's what makes us ambassadors. But as we look at what people go through in this world today, politically speaking, in order to get elected to something, we see a process that is quite amazing. It's strenuous. It goes on for a long period of time. As we look at the politics of this land and being elected to uh, some kind of office, be, be it president, to Congress, to the Senate, they go and they begin their political run for their office for years. I don't know if any of you have ever been elected to anything before, but, um, you know, it's interesting. I've had a couple of experiences when I was in high school. Some of my friends came to me one day and they said, hey, such and such is running for junior class president. Or I think it was senior class president. I was a junior at the time. And they said, you know, we don't want him to be president. Why don't you run? I'm like, I don't want to be senior class president. I don't know anything about that. But they talked me into it. And as a result, I got my first chance at public speaking in front of a few people in the gymnasium there in the high school. So I ran for class president, but I didn't win. I lost to some girl. <laughs> I guess she was better looking than me or something. I don't know. But uh, that was my first experience. But then later on, after my wife and I had bought a townhome and a new development, the homeowners realized that I was, was in construction, had a lot of background in that, and dealing with the builder being a new development, they thought it would be helpful to have me as president of the homeowners association so they elected me to that. And basically, it was a lot of work, a lot of frustration, and very little gratitude and zero pay. Didn't, didn't get a dime for it. But uh, running for public office is very different because, obviously, politically, people can make some pretty good money. Uh, as an example of uh, one time a few years ago in California, a very small city of about 35,000 residents, it was turned up as they began to have financial difficulties, that their mayor that they had elected was giving himself a salary of $800,000 a year. Not bad for a city of 35000 I guess he was doing okay. He didn't mind it. Uh, the president of the state, United States only makes $400,000 a year. And, uh, you know, that, that's a pittance, right? I mean, well, I don't know. You'd be happy with 400000 a year, I'm sure. It's not too, uh, I don't think too many people in this room are making more than that. 
But, uh, you know, from the way this world looks at money, in this country especially, uh, 400000 isn't necessarily a big paycheck. I mean, most all the sports stars and the movie stars and the, you know, singers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, they're making millions of dollars a year, and yet the pres- president just makes a piddly little $400,000 salary. But he does have some pretty good perks. He does have a couple of nice perks, private jet, you know, he can go wherever he wants, when he wants. That's nice. So you're all asking yourself, well, what does that have to do with me today? What does that have to do with us? Politics are of the world. None of us are going to be running for president for 2016, I doubt. I mean, I think Hillary's probably got that tied up, but uh, we'll see. Let's look over here in God's word. Turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. See what I'm talking about, where I'm going with all this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We'll begin here in verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God, and, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers. Paul cared about the brethren. He cared greatly about them. He prayed for them constantly. And obviously we know and understand we should be praying for one another. He goes on in verse 3 to say, Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love. He said it was a work of faith, a labor of love. It was doing something. It wasn't just about praying for them. There was labor. There was hard work involved in, in essence, caring for them. Their work of faith, their labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. Knowing, beloved brethren... Your election by God. Your election by God. You see, we are in an election. It says right here in God's word. That's, that's the word it uses. Now, obviously, that's an English word. But if you look that word up in the Greek, and going back to its roots, it says that it is a divine selection. That we are chosen or elected. We're an election. This same word is used over in Acts chapter 9, if you turn back there quickly, in Acts chapter 9, to give a little better depth of understanding of what this word is. In, verse, in the first verses here of verse 9, we read about Saul, who became Paul, and how God, in essence, dealt with him. He struck him down, he blinded him. And then in verse... in. Uh, Beginning here then in in verse 8, it says that Paul arose from the ground. When his eyes were opened, he saw no one. And so they took him to Damascus, and he was three days there without food or water. And then it's, now there was a certain disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And to him, the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he says, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying, and in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so he might receive his sight. He says, go to this man, Saul of Tarsus. And so Ananias answers and said, Lord, are you nuts? He's like, what? You want me to do what? He's like, I know who this man is. He says, I've heard of him. 
I have heard much about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. Now, he didn't actually say, are you nuts? I just put that in there because you've got to imagine it was kind of going through his head. What does he want me to do? What have I been asked to do here? But the Lord said to him, he, well, in completing verse 13, it says, How much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call in your, on your name. He says, he can throw me in prison. Now, Ananias was talking to the Lord. And the human reaction is just to do what he did. But I think the Lord understood that. He understood. But yet... He was patient with Ananias and he said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings and children of Israel. He says he is a chosen vessel of mine. And that word that's translated as chosen there is the same exact word we saw in first Thessalonians. He has been elected to, in essence, be a servant of God. God called him for a specific purpose. And we understand as we read the life of Paul and of all the things that he went through, he was used in a very special and dramatic way more than just about anybody that we read about when we see all of the trials and tests and everything that he went through in his life. But it says that God had chosen him. And as we know and understand, God has chosen each and every one of us that's here today. That's the reason we are here. We have been given an election. We are elected by God, chosen by God to one day have the opportunity to be a part of his family. God has chosen us and given uh, giving us the opportunity to be the sons, I'm sorry, his sons, but the bride the wife of his son, Jesus Christ, one day. That's an awesome calling. That's an awesome calling. We understand that being chosen is important. In John 6, Jesus said, No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. God has drawn us. And this word that's translated here as drawn can also be translated as drag. It's more than just a gentle drawing in essence. In some cases, it can actually be dragging. And as we see what happened here with Paul, that makes a little more sense. Because in essence, Paul had to be dragged. God knocked him down and he blinded him to get his attention. And with some of us, that's perhaps the way that God worked with us. He allowed great trials and tribulations to come on our lives to affect us, to get our attention, to turn to Him, to realize that we need Him. We need Him to be a part of our lives, to live His life in us through the power of His Holy Spirit. God had to drag us. He had to draw us to Him. But ultimately, God is not going to drag us into His kingdom. He has gotten our attention now he has chosen us. He has selected us, a divine selection. And he has elected us. But now we have to complete the process because it's an ongoing process. It isn't just a matter of 
Yes, now we've got it made. The world thinks that, you know, all you have to do is love Jesus and you have him in your heart and that's it. You're going to be resurrected. You're going to be an, uh, like an angel or something. Whatever they happen to believe. All sorts of beliefs. It's more than that. We have to choose to heed the calling and the election that we have been given. We have to make that choice and we have to begin to make those choices in our lives or we will not be elected. In Matthew twenty-two fourteen, Jesus said, Many are called, but few are chosen. That word called, it comes from the Greek root kletos. And it means invited, invited or appointed. We have been, giving, been given an invitation is what it is. That calling is an invitation to be a part of God's family. But we have got to take that invitation in essence and respond to it and do those things that are pleasing to God in order that we might be part of the few, the chosen. There are few that will be ultimately chosen and will ultimately be elected. That word chosen can also be, and it comes from the same Greek root that we talked about earlier of elect, and it can also be translated as elect. You see, we are given an opportunity to be part of a process, an electoral process. As a man begins to run for an, an office, they want to be elected, but they are not yet elected. They have to go through all of the work that it takes to get elected finally to win the election. We're not looking for votes other than for one. We just need one vote. We need God's vote to be elected into his family ultimately, to gain that final election, to be one of his sons. That's the real meaning of what we're talking about here today. What is it that we've got to be doing in our lives to make and be assured that we are not just called, but we will also be chosen? What is it the things that we have to do? There's a lot of them. God's word is full of them. The first thing we need to remember about the election is that it is unlike a political campaign. It doesn't end. A political campaign is over in six months or a year or two years, whatever it happens to be. But for us, we're running for election for our entire lives. Every single day, we are running for election, so to speak. However, the reward that we seek is far greater than the reward that men seek when they are elected. Because the reward we seek is a lifetime, a lifetime benefit. The President of the United States serves for four, perhaps even eight years, and then that's it. It's over and done. He does get some great lifetime benefits, though, secret service for the rest of his life, etc., etc. But that's just for his physical life. We're looking at an election to eternal life, and that's the election that we have got to be striving for. Turn over to Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 1. <clears throat> In 
in Second Peter chapter 1, let's begin in verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. Make it sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the election that we seek. Being given eternal life. Entrance into God's family, into His kingdom. And then in verse 12, he says, For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. See, Paul said, I know that you basically know these things. You understand these things to an extent. But he's saying, I'm reminding you of these things. And that's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to hopefully remind you and try to put some thoughts in your mind of what things you need to be doing to making your calling and election sure. But going back to verse 10, he says, if, if you do these things, you will never stumble. Do what things? What do you have to do so that you won't stumble and so your calling and election will be sure? That's the first part of the chapter. So let's go back to the first part of the chapter here. Let's begin in verse 3. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of our God and of Jesus our Lord. And His divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You see, it's not by our power that we can do anything. It's by His divine power that we are able to do these things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceeding great and precious promises that we just read about in in verse 11 that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. He mentions seven keys here. Seven things, as we read in verse 10, talking about if you do these things, these are the things that we need to be doing. These are the things that I need to be doing that you need to be doing if we are going to inherit life. And as he goes on in verse 8 to say, for if these things are yours and abound, abound, they're plentiful. You will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Many of us here have been in the church for a long time. We have roots that go back to the worldwide church of God and to what happened there. And we saw... We, as we saw what happened and we saw that blindness begin to enter in as people no longer focused on these things. 
They understood and they knew. They were with us. My friends were with me. They went to church with me, to the feast with me. I spent hours and hours, hundreds of hours. And today, most of the people that I grew up are gone. They're gone. They allowed themselves to become short-sighted and eventually leading to blindness, to blindness of the truth, to the blinding of no longer being able to understand God's truth, the way of life. So brethren, let's take the rest of the time that we have here today to look at these seven things. And the title of my sermon today is Seven Keys to Making Your Calling and Election Sure. Seven Keys to Making Your Calling and Election Sure. We are given these seven keys right here. And if we will put these to use, if we will make them a part of us, we can make our calling and ultimately our election sure. We can be a part of God's family. So let's look and see what we can learn from the words that we have here in God's word. We've been promised a great promise. We've been promised a crown of life. Yet we've got to make sure that we don't lose our crown. Revelation 3, talking to the church of Philadelphia, it says, let no man take your crown. We must not allow our crown to be taken. We must not allow ourselves to become blinded and short-sighted. We must not allow ourselves to stumble and fall and give up. We must work hard. It's hard, it's daily, it's a lifetime of work, as I said. Let's make sure that our calling and election is sure. Going back to verse 5, once again we read, But for this very reason, giving all diligence. Before I get into the seven keys, let's look at the background before that. Because it isn't just about knowing these keys. It says that we are to be giving all diligence to attaining these things, to having these things. All diligence means you're putting your whole heart into it. A lot of the other translations interpret it as saying, make every effort. Make every effort. Don't ever let down. Don't ever give up. But put everything into it. The Greek root, when you look at that... And what it is is talking about, it is talking about that you are adding to. You are adding to. We already understand these basic concepts. And just as Paul said that he is reminding them of these. Yes, we all know we have to have these things. But we need to continually be adding to them. To enhancing these traits in our lives. And so we add to these things to abundantly and fully supply ourselves with them. So, now that we understand what we need to be doing, it says that we are to add to our faith virtue. Well, let's back up a word. Add to your faith. Faith is something that we all must have. If we don't have absolute faith and trust in God willingly putting our lives in his hands, none of this other even matters. But God is continuing to work with us to build our faith. 
So in essence, these next seven keys that we're talking about here are the building process of making our faith even greater, increasing our faith, so that when Jesus returns, he does find faith. He asks, will I find it? And we've got to ask ourselves, will he find faith in me? Will he find faith in me? And so we have to have faith. And he understands that we would not be called if we didn't have faith. We would not be here today if we didn't have faith in God. But we need to enlarge that. Give all diligence to add to it. To add to your faith virtue. The first key it mentions here is virtue. I gave my last sermon here back in August on the virtuous Christians where I talked about the qualities of virtue and being a virtuous Christian and how important that is. The definitions dictionary, the dictionary gives to virtue is moral excellence and goodness, righteousness, conformity of one's life and conduct to moral and ethical principles. And yes, these are important traits, but the meaning goes deeper than that. Because if you look back to once again to the Greek root word, arate, that is used here, that's translated as virtue, it says that it comes from the same root that means manliness or valor, valor, excellence. We have to have manliness, manly valor and excellence in order to have virtue. And in order to build our faith, we've got to have that manliness, that valor and excellence about our lives. Turn back to Acts chapter 4. Because here we see what he's talking about when it's talking about valor. It isn't talking about going out to battle and fighting a physical battle and having valor in that way. It's talking about spiritual battle. It's talking about the battles that we fight daily in our lives. That we are manly. That we man up as we say today. And we take on the fight. We fight the good fight as the Apostle Paul called it. In Acts chapter 4, we see here, without taking the time to read the entire chapter, that Peter and John have been preaching. They have been healing people and they have been upsetting greatly the Pharisees. And they have been arrested and taken before them. And so they, they talk to them. And picking up the story then here in verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, the boldness, the valor, you could say, the manliness with which they did what they did. When they saw that, they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained, but yet they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, which this is what brought this whole thing about originally. He, they said that they could say nothing against... I'm sorry, I missed... Um, they had been healed standing with them, that they could say nothing against it. They could say nothing against the healing, but yet it said when they had commanded them to go aside, to, commanded them to go aside out of the room, they conferred amongst themselves. And they basically agreed amongst themselves that they didn't want these people 
doing these things and preaching these things. And so they called them in verse 18, and they commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. They said, you may not do this. And what did Peter and John say in verse 19? They answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which have been which have been seen and heard. They stood up for the truth. They stood up for what was right. They had valor and manliness. And we see that same kind of attitude throughout the New Testament, looking at many examples of the Apostle Paul and how he stood up in the face of danger and he preached the truth to the point that when he was in Lystra that they stoned him quite possibly to death. If he was not dead, he was certainly right on the verge of death. But he got right back up and he went into the next city and he began preaching again just the same as he had in Lystra. And then not too long after there, that, that he went right back to Lystra. He did not fear because he had that virtue about him, that valor to do the truth, to stand up for the truth. We had the funeral for my stepmother Cheryl this, this past Wednesday. And in his talk, my father talked about Cheryl and that she had stood up for the truth, that she was a Christian soldier that I think she, he used the word a Christian warrior for the truth, standing up and not fearing against people that were trying to put him down and get rid of him. That's what we all have to do because, brethren, we don't have to face a lot of persecution right now, but it will happen. And if we don't, and ha don't have the backbone, if you will, the virtue to stand up for the truth, we aren't going to make it. We have got to, in essence, strengthen our faith through having this virtue, through living that way of life, not being afraid of saying and doing the right thing because you know that it's pleasing to God, not hiding your beliefs and what you know and understand in a corner, hoping that others won't find out that you keep the Sabbath or the holy days. There is nothing, standing, nothing wrong with standing up for the truth but there is something wrong if you don't stand up for the truth. We've got to stand up for the truth and have that kind of valor. And if we do that, and as we do that, that strengthens our faith because God sees that. And He is pleased with that. And He will give us more of His Spirit to help us, in essence, continue to do more and more. We've got to make sure that we don't give any of our accusers a reason to hate us. We don't want to give them any ammunition to use against us. So we have to do everything in the right way in the, as we stand up for the truth, not condemning them, but standing up in the right way. In the political arena, there's a lot of barbs that are thrown back and forth. People will put you down as far as they put each other down and they try to drag up all your faults and all of your problems. And we've seen time and time again politicians' campaigns go up in flames because they've been able to drag up some old thing about them, some affair they had or some thing that they did in their lives that embarrassed them to the point that they could no longer continue to run. 
and then they give up and they quit. But we aren't in a race to quit. We must not quit. We must have the valor to keep going on. Satan is the accuser of the brethren, we are told. He is our accuser and he accuses us day and night. But we must not allow him to get us down. We must stand up against him, against his wiles. He's out there as a roaring lion. But if we have virtue, we will win the battle. We will win against Satan. And so we must add to our faith virtue. But then the second thing that he mentions in 2 Peter 1 is that we add to our faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. The second key he gives is knowledge. Knowledge is important. He isn't talking here, of course, about head knowledge, rocket science, able to do all of these wonderful things. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's not the kind of knowledge that's being talked about here. We are told in 2 Peter 3.18 that we are to grow in grace and knowledge. We are to grow in that. It's a continuing process. And as we continue to study God's Word in depth, we will be able to, in essence, increase our knowledge and understanding of what God has in store for us, what He is doing, what His Word means, what it is that we need to be doing as we increase that knowledge. From an electoral standpoint, if you are running for an election, you would want to have knowledge of your opponent and what he was doing. What is his platform? What does he stand for so that I can attack him? But yet, on the other hand, we also have to have a good knowledge of what we believe in, a knowledge of our foundation, of our beliefs. And if we don't know what we believe, how can we defend ourselves if we are attacked? We have to know fully what, what we believe in and what our basis is. The wisest man in the world who ever lived, King Solomon, what did he say? Get wisdom. Get understanding. In other words, get knowledge so that you can know what is right. You can know what is wrong. We need to have the knowledge that God wants us to have. And that, as I said, knowledge is not book learning of this world. That is not the wisdom that comes from mankind. It is the wisdom that comes from above, as, J- as James called it in James chapter 3 and verse 15. Wisdom that comes from above. That is the knowledge that we must seek. We go to God and ask Him to open our minds to help us to understand His Word. To drink in of His Word, steadying it day by day. Do you do that? Is it really important to you? Or do you just take five or ten minutes and read a few things here and there as is convenient throughout the week? In his February 10th co-worker letter of 2010, my father wrote, True education, as Scripture presents it, goes far beyond knowledge production. It must teach the spiritual values without which all the other pursuits will lead to ruin. Spiritual values. That's the kind of knowledge we're talking about. 
True education must be based on the truth of God. All other foundations are but vanity. Only a Christian with a desire to learn from the great teacher and to follow his example will build a proper foundation to receive true knowledge. You see, you build a foundation and you begin to build on that foundation. You don't just suddenly get your doctorate and know the entire Bible. God does not reveal his word to each of us just boom overnight. You can't just download God's word into our brain. Wouldn't it be great if you could go home each night and you could just plug yourself in before you went to bed and say, okay, download the latest updates so that in the morning I'll have more spiritual knowledge and understanding. That would be great. But that isn't how it works. We have got to make the effort to gain that knowledge. Make that effort to do that. He goes on to write, the world is filled with false values. So there is an obvious need to recapture true biblical values. Reliable knowledge of these true values comes from only one source, God's word. True education is training in truth. And the Bible is the starting point for truth. It reveals how to love God and how to love our neighbor. It teaches the true way of life. As Jesus Christ said in John 14:6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. As you know, all of us involved in this work labor earnestly to live by and teach God's way of life and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God to the entire world as a witness. And you have a vital and important part in that work through your earnest, heartfelt prayers and continued financial support. An important part of this work is its higher education arm, Living University. RLU students are taught to apply biblical values to every facet of life. You see, here we have a perfect way to gain knowledge. Here we have a perfect way to gain that wisdom that comes from above through our university that we have at the college. Living University offers classes in all sorts of areas. If you think you know the entire Bible better than any of those men that are teaching these classes, then you're probably the smartest man in this room. But I seriously doubt that any of us sitting here couldn't learn something from taking those classes. All of us can continue to learn and should continue to learn. And Living University gives us a way to do that that can help us have a deeper understanding of what God wants us to learn. But this responsibility to continue to learn is not just about us. It's not just for us. Because God is using us to do what? To do his work. To be lights to this world. And as such, God has called us to help to show the way of life and the truth to others that we are around to be a light and a beacon in a very dark world. And if we don't have the knowledge and understanding of the truth, and someone comes and starts asking you questions about, well, why does your church do this? Or why does your church do that? And you can't answer them. What does that tell them? How does that help them? 
we are called to help others. It isn't just about me. If my only concern is about getting me into God's family, and if I can just live a perfect life for me, then I can go live on some mountaintop somewhere. But God has called us to be servants, to learn lessons through how we interact with others, how we deal with others, how we show love and care and concern for one another. And so our desire to learn God's word should not just be about ourselves, but about helping and benefiting others as well. And if that is our desire, God will grant that desire if you ask him to teach you so that you can help others, so that you can be an example to others. If God could help each and every one of you to be a light to just one person out there in the world that would be called because of your example, wouldn't that be awesome? Our numbers would double. We'd have to get a new hall. But that's what we're about. That's what God has called us to do. And we've got to make sure that we do our best to continue to gain that knowledge and understanding of God's word. But that is just the second point. The third point, the third key Peter talks about in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 6 is that we are add to, that we are to add to our knowledge self-control. Self-control. Political careers have been ruined because of a lack of self-control. Lives have been ruined, lives have been lost because of lack of self-control. Self-control is one of the last, I say is one of, is the last one of the fruits of the Spirit that's mentioned in Galatians 5, but it's a very critical one of the fruits of the Spirit that for some of us especially is very difficult. Self-control isn't necessarily an easy thing for some of us. I have a tough time with it. I always have. You can ask my dad, as a young kid playing games, I'd get mad, I'd lose, I'd throw the board. I still do, no. (laughs) I feel like doing it, but I don't. (laughs) I've learned to control my emotions, just not my thoughts yet. I'm still working on that. But, you know, you can't, you can't, you know, excuse yourself and just say, well, that's just me. I'm I'm a type A personality and that's the way I am. Did God call you to be just the way you are? Or did he call you to be different? Did he call you to repent, to change, to be a new man? Did he not give you a new heart when you were baptized and hands were laid on you so that you can learn to control your emotions? It's not an easy thing. It's something that we all have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. This self-control or lack of self-control, begins pretty much at birth. A baby wants something, it screams. A young child wants something, it screams. A teenager wants something, it screams. It, It just keeps going on. It's just the way, in essence, the carnal nature of man is. We don't want to control our emotions. We just want what we want. But we have been called to be different. We've got to learn to control everything about our lives, in essence. 
It isn't just about anger issues. Self-control covers a vast array of issues. As we look in this around us in this world at all of the problems that are out there, you look in the political arena and you see a huge problem of people lack, being unable to lack control sexually. It's just a given that there's all kinds of stuff going on in Washington. It happens constantly. And this world is so focused on that because they can't control that or don't try to control that emotion, that lust, if you will. Drugs. They're a scourge to this land. People don't control themselves. And they take drugs and then they lose even more control. Alcohol. Pornography. Pornography is one of the biggest scourges that is sweeping not just this world, but through the Internet. I say not just this world, not just this country, but through the Internet, the world. It is one of the largest things on the Internet. I did a little research just to kind of get some feeling for it. A few years ago, it actually there were actually more porn sites, they said, on the Internet than anything else. But since in the last few years, there's been an explosion of websites. They're no longer this, the majority of sites that you go to. But interestingly, they say that pornography is the number two downloaded thing on the Internet, only second to YouTube. And there's a lot of junk on YouTube that basically is pornographic too, I'm sure. But it's a huge thing. And people think that they can just do it in the privacy of their home. They don't need to control themselves. They can just do what they want and let go to their lusts. We've got to control our our lives, everything about them, everything we think and say and do. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians 10. In 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 4, we read, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. We have got to have weapons for our warfare. We've got to have weapons to win our election. And they've got to be able to pull down strongholds, casting down arguments and everything that exists that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. We have got to bring every single thought into captivity. Now that is a tall order. It's an order I seriously doubt any of us in this room can do for an extended period of time. Our minds just tend to wonder. And ultimately, we're going to start having some thoughts that we shouldn't have. But our goal, if you will, what we seek to do is to bring every thought into captivity. And if we are focused on God, loving Him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind and strength, we can begin to bring the thoughts of our mind into captivity, under control, under control. We're in a spiritual battle for the control of our lives. It's a battle. It's a war. It wages day by day. And we've got to make sure that we have the weapons to defend ourselves and to fight back. And we put those on every day. 
we understand that that is about putting on the whole armor of God. Putting on that armor that we read about in Ephesians chapter 6. Making sure that we have all of those things in place. Having that helmet of salvation. That helmet protects our minds. That helmet is what, in essence, we put on to block Satan's attack. Trying to put evil thoughts in our minds. Let's make sure that we go out to battle each day protected, ready to go to war, having our sword and our shield and our breastplate, having our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel so that we can go to war, we can win this battle, we can win the war that we are fighting. For our calling and election to be sure, we have to exercise self-control in every aspect of our lives. But then the fourth key that Peter mentions here in chapter 1 and verse 6 is that we add to our self-control perseverance. Perseverance. That word is also translated in the King James and other translations as patience. Patience. If you look up the Greek roots of the word... It says that it is cheerful or hopeful endurance. Not just enduring, gritting your teeth and saying, I hate this and I'm enduring it. He's talking about cheerful or hopeful endurance. Constancy. And and it's translated as enduring, patience or patient continuance. If you kind of combine these definitions, I came up with my own definition. And it is that perseverance is that we need to cheerfully and patiently endure with perseverance. Cheerfully and patiently endure with perseverance. That's not easy to do. That isn't easy to do. The Apostle James wrote, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. How are trials joyful? How can you have joy in trials? Most people don't understand that concept, but hopefully we do. Because we should realize that if we are having trials and tests, it's because God loves us. It shows that he is actually actively involved in our lives. He's helping us build our faith through trials. As we endure these trials, as we go through them, we have to look to God Because hopefully we realize that we can't do it by ourselves. If we aren't looking to him, if we aren't asking for his help, we're not going to get through them cheerfully, patiently. Too many times we try to get ourselves and do it ourselves. We don't look to God. We don't look to him and say, God, show me your ways. And then we go out and we do it our own way. And what are we to end up doing? We end up bringing trials on ourselves, don't we? We bring it on ourselves. I know. I do it way too often. God doesn't necessarily need to strike me with lightning or hit me with a two-by-four because I'm quite capable of bringing my own trials on myself for doing stupid things, specifically for not looking to Him first and foremost. When I had my own business a few years ago, 
I made some stupid mistakes. I did some things I shouldn't have done. But mostly, I didn't go to God as I should have. I didn't look to Him for His help, for His wisdom and His guidance. One of the jobs I did toward the end was a job that I wanted so bad I could taste it. I had built a home for a client that had since sold it, and the new clients had bought the home, wanted to do a very large addition to it. And I looked at that home and said, that's my house. I built that house. I don't want anybody else working on that house. I wanted that job. I wasn't going to let anything happen to get in my way if I could help it. And I worked myself to the bone, so to speak, just to get the contract. And I finally got the contract. God bless me, didn't he? No, he didn't. He didn't. That turned out to be the worst job of my life. It turned into a nightmare that cost me a fortune because it went south, as we say. But as I looked back on it, after all was said and done, I realized I didn't look to God. I didn't look to God until it was too late. When I was in the midst of the fiery trial, then I asked him for help. But I didn't go to him before and say, God, if you want me to have this job, please make it so. Make it clear. I brought the trial on myself. I had to get through it, and with his help, I was able to. I got through it, and I moved on. But I learned a lesson. I've got to look to him. But even as the trial continued on, I realized the only way I was going to get through it, the only way I was going to survive, so to speak, was with the strength that came from him, from patiently enduring with perseverance. We all have trials in life. We've got to endure and look to God for help to get through those trials, to get through those tests. And if we do, once again, our faith become stronger because we realize that God is there. He is working in my life. He is working with me. And that's what we want. That's what we want. That's what we've got to know. Well, let's move on to the fifth key here in 2 Peter 1 and verse 6. We are to add to our self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness. Godliness. What is he talking about? godliness here if you look the greek word up some translations translate it as holiness it says that is it is piety reverent and devout being pious and reverent and devout means that you have a godward attitude you are once again you're looking to god your attitude the way you live your life the way you do everything you do you do in a pious way looking to god not looking to yourself just as i was talking about with the last point there but we live our lives for god we look to him jesus christ set an example that we should follow be you holy for i am holy being and having holiness, being holy is something that we have got to do. We have got to walk in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. Once again, reading God's word, 
drinking in of that so we can have the mind of Christ. As we heard about in the song today, using the words from Galatians 2.20. Jesus Christ living His life in us. If we have that attitude, we are acting and our attitude is Godward. It is toward God, looking to God in all things. We will have and be holy. We will have holiness as a part of our being, if you will. The way we live our lives. When we were in Israel at the feast this past year, we were able to walk in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, so to speak. We were in Nazareth. We were in other places that he was, from Chorazim to Dan to you name it. And, of course, in Jerusalem, where he ultimately died. We walked more or less in his footsteps. We got to experience that feeling of being there. And that was a wonderful experience. But walking in his physical footsteps can bring alive his life to us and did. The people that were there just said it it makes our Bible study come so much more alive. But it was the Bible study that was coming alive as they realized that this is where Jesus was. This is what he saw. He was here on the Sea of Galilee as we were out on the Sea of Galilee on a boat. He walked right across this water. But he lived his life in a way setting us an example that we should be holy as He is holy, that we should live holy lives, that we should have a holy attitude, live in holiness, in godliness, having that Godward attitude about us. That's what God wants us to do. He gave His Son for us. He not only gave Him to be that sacrifice, but to set us that example that we live by. And so as you go back and you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you read of other examples later in the New Testament of saying the things that Jesus said and did. We can become more like Him. We can be more holy. We can have a holiness to us that we could not have otherwise so that we can walk in His footsteps. And as we have that holiness... Once again, we're building our faith through that because we realize it all comes from God. It is all about Him. It's not about us. It's about Him. So we, we want to make sure that we do all that we can to live a godly life, to live a godly way of life that is pleasing to God in all things. All of these points I'm talking about here today are are just, I'm covering a little tiny bit, a little tiny portion. You can have an entire sermon on each one of these points that can go into much greater depth. And there have been many sermons. Mr. Ames gave sermon number 664 entitled Growing in Godly Character that also was turned into an article. We need to have godly character. We need to learn God's way of life through studying His Word, and so that we can live more godly lives that are pleasing to Him. Well, let's move on in 2 Peter. The final two points he puts here in verse 7 are that we are to add to our godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love. 
to brotherly kindness, love. You see, here we have the two, in essence, kinds of love that we talk about. Brotherly love, that word brotherly kindness there, it comes from Philadelphia. The Philadelphia love that hopefully those of us who have a Philadelphian attitude, we love our brothers. We care about one another. We have an attitude of service, of giving, of helping, of doing whatever we can for our brothers. That's the kind of love that then rolls over to godly love, agape, the love that God has for us, the love that Jesus Christ had for us as he gave his life for us. And he said, there is no greater love than to lay down your life for a friend. Philadelphia love, if you will, is enlarged in that. You're having that attitude of willingness to lay down your life. Jesus Christ laid his life down for us. He showed us such great love that we can never repay. He loves us more than anything. He loves us so greatly we can't even understand it. He will do any and everything for us. There is nothing he can't do. He wants us to have good things. He allows the trials and tests to come upon us to test our our commitment to him, our love of God. But then he shows us his great love in so many different ways. I told you about my trial. But then, after I was hired to work for the church full-time in the ministry, I closed my business down, no longer doing any of my construction business. But after 28 years in business, I had a lot of stuff that I needed to sell. I had an entire office and shop and yard full of tools and trucks, building materials, you name it. A lot of stuff builds up after 28 years. And I tried to sell it. But there was one small problem. We were at kind of the worst time in the economy in many decades. Nobody had any money. There wasn't a whole lot of work out there. I called everybody I knew, so to speak, in construction. I said, hey, I'm shutting the business down. I'm selling this and this and this. And I kept getting the same answer. Hey, I'd love to be able to buy some of your stuff. I'm just barely making it right now. I'm, I'm trying to keep my head above water. I can't afford to buy anything. And so I went on and on, month after month. And it was getting up toward the feast. And I'm looking at this stuff and I'm going, I don't know what I'm going to do here. I'm having to continue to pay rent on my shop and nothing's happening. I'm not bringing any income in in the business to support it. And I've got all this stuff that I've got to get rid of. What am I going to do? And then one day I get a phone call from one of my employees who had gone to work for another contractor. And he says, hey, you still have my truck that you're trying to sell? And I said, yeah, I haven't been able to sell it yet. And he says, well, the guy I'm working for is interested in it. I told him about it. And I said, okay, great. Tell him to give me a call. So he gave me a call and he came over to look at the truck. And he said, I understand you've got other stuff for sale here. And I said, oh, yeah, just look around, everything you see. I walked him around, I showed him my truck, my dump truck, my tools. My, I had a complete cabinet shop full of shop materials. And the more he walked around and asked questions, he said, 
He's like, wow, this is, this is amazing. He said, I could just kind of walk in here tomorrow and start building cabinets. And I said, absolutely. I said, the guy you got working for me, him and his brother, were my main two guys that built cabinets for me for years. They could walk in here tomorrow. He's like, wow, that's interesting. He said, uh, how much do you want for everything? And I said, everything what? He said, everything. I said, tools, trucks, everything? He said, yeah. I looked at him and I said, I don't know. <laughs> and I didn't know. <laughs> I had no clue. If he just said, how much do you want for that drill? I would have told him it's a hundred bucks or whatever. I said, I'll get back to you. But I called him back and I gave him the number and he said, okay. And I said, okay, what? He says, I'll take it. <laughs> You'll take what? I'll take everything. And he walked in a couple of weeks later with a check. I handed him the keys and I walked away. It was going to cost me thousands of dollars to try to move that into storage or do something. I don't even know what I was going to do. But God blessed me because he loved me. He saw what I was doing and he opened the door. He made me have patience. It became a trial for me because as I went through this trial, I cried out to him and I said, God, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And one day, previous to this happening, I had been taking my morning walk up the mountain behind my house. And as I always did, I, I was alone talking to God, praying. And, I, and at one point during the prayer, I was praying about what am I going to do here? And this thought came into my head. I thought, you know, wouldn't it be great if somebody would just come along and buy everything? I thought, nah, that'll never happen. God does hear the thoughts of our heart. He knows. He heard me and he blessed me because he loves me. That's the kind of love that he has for us. He will do what we need. He will help us. That's the kind of love that we have to have for him. That's the kind of care that we have to have for him. That's the kind of love that we have to have for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We've got to develop that love to a depth that it is unconditional, unconditional love. That's another sermon by Mr. Ames, number 510. Have unconditional love for God and for one another. Loving someone and helping someone when it's convenient isn't really love. That's not really the depth of love that we need to have. We need to help one another when it's inconvenient. When you get that call in the middle of the night that, you, that somebody ran out of gas or their car broke down, or getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning to take someone to the airport, which I'm doing tomorrow. <laughs> but we have to have love for one another. And if we will just look at the love that God has given us and realize that God loves us so much that he gave his only begotten son for us, without that, nothing matters. Our lives don't matter. We've got to... Deeply love our great God. Love him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. Have that agape love, but have that Philadelphia love. And the more we have of that, the greater that our faith is strengthened. The greater we begin to come together as a whole man so that we can be a part of God's family. 
each and every one of us sitting here today needs to deeply understand and appreciate that there is a reason that we are here. It is not an accident. You didn't just accidentally happen to stop by and, and see that there's some church going on here. God has called us. He has put us here for a reason. We have been invited to be a part of God's family. To live for eternity as a God being. We've been given an invitation. We are in an election process. And if we will do these things, if we will have these character traits, is what they are, be more a part of our lives, we can make our calling and election sure. As a candidate has to work day and night to get elected, we have to work day and night tirelessly, never giving up, never giving in. Going down the campaign trail, going through every trial and test that comes along the way, whether it's raining or snowing or sleeting or hailing, we keep going. We don't let anything slow us down, so to speak. It's not an easy road to go. It takes hard work. It takes diligence. It takes love. It takes God's helping us. But if we look to Him for that help, He will give it to us. Brethren, we're in an election campaign. We aren't campaigning against one another, but rather against ourselves. We have got to overcome ourselves if we are going to be elected. Overcome the influences of Satan and his demons in this world around us. If we are going to be elected to be a part of God's family. It's a longer and harder campaign trail than any president ever went through. But as I said, the reward is so much greater. $400,000 a year for president is just a little bit. It's just here and gone. What we are being elected to is eternal life. Our calling and election will be sure if we fully and abundantly add to and strengthen our faith with these seven things. Virtue, Knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and godly love. Turn back to Second Peter chapter 2 in closing. Let's read these words here one more time. We'll conclude where we started off. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent... More diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is the promise. That is what we look forward to. That is what we all desire. That is what we all Pray for and hope for daily. And so he says, For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Brethren, I have reminded you. I have given you a reminder today. Please take it to heart. Please use it. 